Hello and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer, the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we have Tom Kerlick and Nick Lewis come to talk to us about emergency preparedness for, for the medical staff. Welcome to the program, guys. Man, glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, so for the, the medical staff, the audience, I might not know you. Can you give us just a little bit of your background and, and tell us what you do? Sure, I'll go first. Uh, Nick Lewis, I'm the system director of the environmental safety and facilities. And uh, that role encompasses quite a few things. Um, but one of the areas that uh, we support the system with is emergency preparedness. Um, I've been with Baptist going on 22 years and uh, glad to be here. My name is Tom Kerlick. I'm the system manager for emergency preparedness. I've been at Baptist for about 26 years. My background is uh, I'm a nurse by profession. Uh, I've spent uh, also 30 years in the military, uh, mostly in the Army Reserve, so I've been able to work here at Baptist, but then uh, I've gotten called out a few times, and uh, uh, the military does a good job with uh, training us up on uh, biomedical, nuclear, and uh, chemical uh, responses, so I have a little bit of experience with that. Thank you, Nick and Tom. We're certainly glad that you're here. Uh, give us a little bit, tell us what is emergency preparedness? Well, I think it's important to start with, you know, kind of defining that in three stages. So, you know, an emergency is an unexpected or sudden event that significantly disrupts the organization's ability to, to really function um, in normal operations. So it could be an impact to the environment. It could be an impact to um, how we manage our patients. Um, you know, really just an impact to the service. Um, a disaster um, is in a kind of an elevation of that emergency, uh, whether it's due to complexity, scope, or duration, where um, the organization's capabilities are impacted, but we need assistance from probably the outside, some outside resources to continue to sustain, you know, the same level of care uh, and safety with our environments. And then finally, you, know, you kind of combine those things, and we, we land with emergency preparedness. And, and that's the process we go through um, to gain awareness of, of our risk, uh, whether that be natural, technological, human, uh, which would be man-made type events, uh, hazardous material incidents, things of that nature. We identify those risks uh, based on you know, the hospital and our community that we serve. Then we develop plans to respond and recover from those type of events. And those plans are you know, we have an overriding emergency operations plan, which is kind of the, the framework <clears throat> that fits in with our national partners. And then you have event-specific emergency response plans that tie back to our risk assessment in our most risk-adverse type of scenarios. And if I was to add anything, you know, in regards to emergency preparedness, you know, we want to try to do that beforehand, meaning that uh, emergencies can happen all of a sudden, uh, disasters can happen, but sometimes we get some uh, warning about a disaster, say maybe bad weather coming across the country or coming up the Gulf. So uh, if we ha uh, get that kind of warning and that familiarity and we've done some emergency preparedness, that, then we're much better prepared when the event actually uh, comes to our area or strikes us. So uh, 
I can't say enough about, uh, you know, uh, putting forth the effort to prepare and to plan out the emergency be actually, before it actually falls upon us. And so that's great. And, and, you know, I think we all have been living through an, you know, kind of a prolonged emergency over the last, you know, 20 months. Um, and you want know, to think about emergency preparedness. And I, I think a lot about our, our command center and some of the administrative staff that have really helped uh, yourselves included you know, run that. But how do the medical staff fit into a emergency preparedness plan? What is the role of a, of a medical staff member during it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, and there's going to be some variance from facility to facility based on their operational capabilities and how they're structured. Um, but in general, the medical staff uh, really just become, you know, they're, they're a team member. You know, they're part of the bigger team. I think about, um, you know, there's a multi-tiered role. So there's the response role, what we do when we respond. And then there's, there's you know, the planning role that Tom talked about it. And, you know, the reality is, is that up until the last, you know, almost two years now, um, we've primarily lived in the planning and, and testing uh, kind of areas of emergency preparedness, you know, where we do our plans, we test them uh, through drills and exercises and the occasional, you know, you know, mass casualty type of event, a bus wreck or something along those lines. But, you know, you know, this is with the pandemic response, you know, this is generational stuff. This is stuff that will be in history books. And so, um, you know, it's really highlighted, you know, the multifaceted um, aspects of emergency response, which, you know, for, uh, police officers, the military, you know, fire departments, you know, people, uh, public service first responders, um, you know, they're living, you know, components of this day in and day out. And, and to, a, to a degree, our hospital emergencies room, emergency rooms do as well um, on much smaller scales. But when we talk about the broader emergency response, you know, I think the first thing we want to make sure our physicians are engaged in the planning process and that they have uh, a role uh, in that process. Some of that will be dependent on, you know, where they are in the structure of the hospital or facility where they're working. Um, you know, ED physicians, uh, medical staff leadership um, are definitely going to have a voice in um, in certain aspects of the planning and development of the plans. You know, our our intensivists, our hospitalists, and our and our ICU physicians are definitely going to have you know uh, roles in our infection control physicians when we develop our pandemic plans and throughout our pandemic response. There were key members of our you know, subject matter expert teams as we adapted our plans throughout the response. So I think a key role in the planning piece. Um, and then, of course, you know, as we respond to events, whether they're drills or real world, world, world events like the pandemic, we want to make sure that throughout and especially when we're done, we go back and we do an after action report or a critique of, of what we did, you know, what we did well, where we had opportunities. And in the case of the pandemic, guys, we've been doing that for 18 months. Um, you know, we, we on our COVID uh, uh, resource center site, we've got a, a section for issues and, and, and opportunities. And really that's our running list of, of, 
of the opportunities that we identified throughout the response with the actions to closure uh, to, to mitigate that and, and correct it. Um, and so that's that's very important. We want to make sure our physicians are involved with that. And then finally, you know, what do they do when there is a disaster in, in the facility or where they're working? And so, you know, again, that's why we plan um, and we want to make sure people are familiar with the plans. And, and honestly, not to oversimplify it, but with our physician leaders, you know, when a, a disaster is happening, you know, they're going to do what they do. You know, they're going to provide care to our patients. Now, where we might have to adjust is where they're doing that. So, whereas they might be rounding on the floor on patients, we, you know, we might ask if they can come down and help us out in the emergency department or in another area. Um, or if they're surgeons, you know, we might have to lean on them to help us uh, adjust, you know, our, our surgical schedules, um, maybe, um, you know, limiting or even completely canceling all elective, you know, non, non high risk surgery procedures so that we can make room for, uh, you know, to care for patients involved in the incident or to free up staff to yeah. reuse them other ones. Yeah, we certainly saw that or are seeing that. Hopefully that part is over for us where physicians of, of one specialty having to help out in other areas that they weren't quite as familiar with and, and similar for our, our nursing staff as well being moved and shuffled around where they could be uh, better utilized. So those are good points. I think another that Dr. Lancaster is, you know, you touched upon it, is you know, preparing that staff as Nick had precluded to that, you know, working outside their normal uh, parameters. Uh, and we saw that certainly with this, this COVID epidemic and pandemic, and that uh, also the stressors of uh, resources, you know, having to do more with less and, and through no fault of our own, but the logistics that, you know, PPE was often difficult to find. We did a great job about this with uh, Nick's logistical help, and we never had a problem with getting PPE but also um, just other resources that may not be available because of bad weather or uh, uh, staffing shortages. So you got to just kind of think outside the box. And uh, that's where uh, the emergency preparedness comes and uh, training uh, as, as best as we can. You know, uh, the old military adage is train how you fight. So we want to get as realistic training as possible and put people through the paces so that when the emergency actually happens, they'll have a little bit level of uh, uh, comfort, as well as, you know, we still have our regulatory bodies and they, uh, they're they reflecting from uh, and, and testing us by how well we're planning. What's our documentation? Uh, you know, we are resources when people have questions about what's uh, what they're in the midst of what can they fall back on and that's training and uh, the, the education and documentation of things and that's why after an event as small as it may be it's important to have that after action report uh, so that you can capture some of the strengths and weaknesses and we can learn from that thank you could you also provide examples of types of disasters we as a health system should be prepared for Definitely, definitely. You know, so as part of the planning process, you know, the facilities and our system do what's called a hazard vulnerability analysis, which is really a risk assessment. Um, you know, there's standard formats and templates for that that we use across the system. Um, you know, we use a model that came out of California. 
um, and, and actually all of the hospitals in this region use that same format so that there's standardization. Now each each facility will score, you know, potentially somewhat different uh, when we look at the individual types of hazards that we encounter, uh, and that's going to be based on you know the region they're in, um, you know, their operational capabilities, their buildings, their structures. Uh, the age of the building, things of that nature. So there's a lot of things that go into the risk assessment. But, you know, for natural hazards, um, things that happen naturally, uh, you know, pandemic, epidemics, of course, you know, three years ago, those scored up, right? Because there was no history, uh, real history of that. Um, of course, now when we look at the, the HVAs that were done this year and, and last year, pandemics, the top scoring. Uh, tornadoes, of course, here in the Mid-South. Winter weather, uh, while we don't get a lot of uh, snow and ice, when we do get it, it's incredibly problematic operationally for our facilities um, because people aren't uh, accustomed to, one, moving about in ice and snow. And then secondarily to that, uh, our community infrastructures aren't prepared to mitigate it um, because we get, so it's not worth the investment uh, financially necessarily to do that. And so... Um, you know, it makes it difficult to move about. Of course, earthquake, being that we're at the southern tip of the Magic Fault, um, we have some facilities like over in NEA in Jonesboro where they're you know, right there amongst it, and so they have a greater risk for an earthquake. Of course, flooding, we have many of our facilities are near uh, rivers and bodies of water, and so that's always a risk, and severe thunderstorms, of course. Technology, of course, everybody hears it, cyber attacks and ransomware. Um, you know, those things happen every day. In, uh, across the country, across the world, and so uh, we're equally as at risk for that as, as you know, big financial institutions. Um, and sometimes some people think we're more. So we do a lot of work behind the scenes, our IS and IT teams, to mitigate that and, and prevent those things from happening. Uh, HVAC system, of course, our mechanical systems in our buildings failing uh, could create a, a very emergent situation. Um, or some and then human hazards, workplace violence is the top of everybody's list. Um, and we're seeing more and more violence in the healthcare settings, both, you know, patient on staff and, and domestic situations involving patients and, and guests that come to see them. They might not be welcome. Um, and so and then, of course, act, heaven forbid, an active shooter. Um, then, of course, civil disturbances. And then there's always the potential, uh, and this is, you know, typical, not typically not everywhere, but you know we have some facilities that uh, you know butt right up to a, a major railway. And so they've, they've had rail car incidents where there was hazardous material exposures. Um, we had to uh, account for that. Then also you know, we have facilities that are right on major interstates uh, systems, and so you have the potential for highway accidents that with chemical uh, and so being able to respond to that. So those are the the most likely um, to encounter? Yeah, so just looking through this list and, and that list you just put out, it is surprising the number of these that I've experienced in my short career. I think all of us have experienced the winter weather, um, you know, not being able to get into work. Uh, we had that last year. Um, obviously, we had the pandemic. Um, I worked at a hospital where the internet went out. Uh, for for everybody for it was almost 12 hours and so we couldn't figure out how to get it back on um, and it was some random upgrade 
that had occurred at, it, with a device that nobody really thought would have affected something that large, but it really shut down care across the hospital as well as communications. And then, um, yeah, unfortunately, we are seeing a lot more workplace violence and things of that nature that are coming through. You know, one of the things that's not on the list that we often think about is, is some of the bioterrorism type stuff. So that was some always some of the fun material you know, going through med school was learning about, you know, the pathophysiology and of anthrax and some of these other ones. Um, you know, so so what should a physician in the community be prepared for with regards to, to bioterror? So suppose I had 10 people show up in, in my emergency room that had a strange respiratory illness that was just unclear how, how they got it. You know, they're negative for flu, negative for COVID now, and negative for everything else. And they seem to be getting sick quickly. What, what should be going through their minds? What should they be looking for? Yeah, you know, while bioterrorism today, um, <clears throat> it, it's still a, a very strong risk um, out there uh, in our communities. Um, you know, some of these things happen naturally, um, but, but, you know, you, you described, you know, almost an atypical type scenario where you, you have um, numerous numbers of individuals presenting with similar symptomology and uh, with, with often there'll be, you know, some form of a common thread there. So, you know, if you see that and we've ruled out, you know, the typical um, diseases or, you know, uh, illnesses associated, then, you know, that should be the first red flag, right? Um, that there's something odd and amiss. You know, and I think at that point, we need to think about, you know, interacting with the patients. One, probably taking a step back and thinking, you know, I don't know what this is. Could there have been an exposure? And, you know, it's always best to err on the safe side and put on uh, a higher level of PPE as we engage with those individuals and in the unknown. And I would, as a, as a hazmat guy, I would, and, you know, I would say that we would maintain that higher level of PPE until we knew what the agent was or the threat, and then we could match the PPE to, you know, what we know. You know, I think, so then we'd start asking questions of the individuals or people that were with them that brought them, you know, where were you? And, and often history tells us when looking at events that involve bioterrorism, there is a you know, common thread. They were on the same train. They were uh, at the same uh, event um, or they ate at the same restaurant. Uh, and, and, and so, and then at that point, if once we pick up on that cue, you know, the first thing we need to do is call our health department, um, our local health department, get them engaged. And at that point, there's gonna be a lot of escalations that we don't see. Um, you know, from the local health department to the state, and then often probably to CDC. And you'll see a lot of wheels turning rather quickly and people coming into our facilities. So I, I think the first thing is as we, and, I, and you know, Tom and I were talking about this prior to the call, you know, if it seems amiss, it probably is, right? And And so that's where we need to safely take a step back and reassess the situation, gather the facts and review the facts, 
and then start, you know, going down that that uh, that rabbit trail of, of in, you know, inquiry. Um, and then once we land somewhere, we need to start communicating and escalating that communication so that we can get the right resources responding uh, to support the physicians, the nurses, and the teams, and you know wherever this might be occurring. So uh, if, if I could just add, I would say, you know, from the <coughs> from the clinician side, you know, first treat the symptoms. You know, again, what's what you're being what's being confronted often, uh, you know, treating the symptoms. You know, if it's a skin irritant, uh, you know, treat that. Uh, uh, soap and water is never a bad thing. <laughs> so, it, you know, like if you have, if there's an unbeknownst powder on the person, you probably need to get that off. So treat the symptoms. Take a good history. You know, find out as as Nick precluded to. You know, when did this happen? Where did it go? I mean, you know, as as uh, providers, we're very comfortable with asking questions and using critical thinking processes. So that's best. Uh, also, networking. You know, uh, listening to your great podcast, getting <laughs> informed, being educated. What's happening out in the community? What's happened across the country? You know, can that enlighten us to maybe what I'm seeing here in my own clinic? Uh, sharing uh, amongst the staff, uh, amongst our big system of clinicians, too, because uh, maybe they're hearing it somewhere else. And then also, um, you know, for the taking care of the community, you know, we don't have any uh, competitors, you know, and that's the thing. Often with um, disasters, either calculated or uh, inadvertently uh, biomedical problems, chemical spills, people are going to people, you know, immediately if they can, they jump in their cars and where do they go? The closest medical facility. So that could be the acute care uh, walk-in center. It could be our ED. It could be a, a dermatology clinic that happens to be nearby that they brought their child to. They know there's a doctor there. They're going to show up there. So, uh, you know, uh, everything's game when it comes to people uh, uncertainty and uh, wanting to get care as quickly as possible. So that's where I think, you know, these kind of podcasts, this kind of information to educate is uh, is critical as we uh, as we think about, you know, uh, things that uh, come to our front door, our clinic door unexpectedly. We want to try to be as prepared as possible. You know, so in this particular case, um, I was alluding to you know, these people had all received an envelope full of a white powder, and that's how they ended up showing up in the emergency room. And so, you know, that one, I think most people that live through, you know, the 2001 year w would recognize as anthrax pretty straight away. Uh, but what are some of the other bioterrorism pathogens out there that might be that we <coughs> might need to be paying attention to? And, and is this something that we still need to be paying attention to, or is this that era you know, past us? Again, I think it's something we need to keep on our radar. Um, you know, it, it's, I think, uh, you know, we still maintain strategic national stockpiles in the U.S. Uh, with uh, with medicines and, and supplies to counteract, uh, you know, these bi the most typical bioterrorism type events. And so, you know, there's, there is, there's multiple agents out there, you know, uh, the, the, the CDC has identified, you know, they've basically grouped them into three categories. You have category A agents, B agents, and C agents. The highest risk agents, the most probable agents are the category A agents. And so, you know, you talked about anthrax, right? Uh, botulism, plague, smallpox, uh, tularemia, and of course the things like Ebola, 
and the other viral hemorrhagic fevers. Uh, class B, uh, and, the, and the reason those are greater risk is one, they're more easily attainable, they're more easily weaponized, and, and they're more easily dispersed. Um, and so as we go from the class, different classes, uh, you know, they get a little bit harder to get, they get a little bit harder to weaponize, they get a little bit harder to disperse. Um, and, and they're not as um, probably as toxic um, as some of the others. And so class B, I won't read through a long list, but probably the most common there would be, you know, things associated with food safety threats. Um, those aren't necessarily um, high on the radar because they're harder to disperse and typically um, you're not going to see as large of a number um, impacted. Ricin toxins would be another one, uh, encephalitis, uh, and then water threats. And then category C agents, um, you know, that's that would be things like hantavirus, nipavirus. Um, of course, they're high mor morbidity, high mortality, but um, you know, they're they're um, much more hard to uh, engineer. Now, I like that list, and especially the category A agents. You know, tularemia. I always think about. I had. I remember a question on my boards where a farmer had run over a a. I think it was a, a rabbit with his lawnmower, and that ended up getting tularemia. So if, if you're taking your boards, remember that one. And then, you know, everybody <laughs> remembers the, the, the kind of the, the floppy baby that had eaten some honey. That was the botulism. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, you guys alluded to an emergency operation plan. Can you provide more details on, on what's included in this plan? <clears throat> yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, the emergency operations plan is, yeah, I mentioned it earlier, really it's it's the framework um, for emergency response and preparedness. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, multi-agencies, multi-jurisdictions use emergency operations plan. In normal businesses, and normal businesses, everything's a normal business, but, you know, businesses outside of the healthcare sector um, you know, should have some form of emergency operations plan. Of course, in healthcare uh, and in other key industries, you know, emergency operations plans become much more elaborate uh, and detailed, and that's because of, you know, the impact uh, to operations. If there is a negative impact to operations, it's, it's, it could be catastrophic. It could cause loss of life, and so <clears throat> that's why emergency management and preparedness and healthcare is so important. And so we developed these emergency operation plans. Um, we use a common framework uh, that's used by across um, you know, multiple industries. And so we use the National Incident Management System. Uh, and specifically for healthcare, we, we correlate that to the Hospital Incident Command System. It's when we talk about command structures. But from a preparedness and plan standpoint, uh, we really look at six key areas, um, communications, how we manage our resources and assets, how we maintain a safe environment and a secure environment. Uh, we get into, of course, staff responsibilities, and that would be across the spectrum of our employees, um, including physicians and nurses and, and frontline staff in, in multiple departments. Uh, how we maintain our utilities, so how do we keep it, the building warm 
uh, how do we keep the building cool? How do we keep it lit uh, and with power so that we can do all the things that we do in a hospital or in a clinic? And then, of course, patient clinical and support activities. So how we care for the patients. Um, so we have to account for that in our planning. Um, so, you know, the plan, the emergency operations plan defines how we do things in, in a disaster response, whether that be the in implementation of our incident command, where we locate our command center, the activities that go on in the command center, um, specific plans by department and how they respond to different types of events. And then, of course, event-specific emergency response plans, which are typically annexes to your overall framework, but those go into great detail about how we respond to certain things, whether that be a winter storm, you know, uh, uh, a cyber attack, uh, a bioterrorism event, or today, uh, a pandemic. And, and so, so, Nick, so the Joint Commission, when they come and do their inspections, they're looking to make sure you have this, and, how, you know, how much do they go into, I guess, looking through the details of your plan? Yeah, so and I'll let Tom finish, but the they do. This is something that on every survey, whether it's Joint Commission, CMS, DMV, any one of the regulatory bodies, CMS, uh, because we are, you know, we seek reimbursement for care for patients under Medicare and Medicaid, um, we have to have certain components in our emergency response plans um, that they look for. And so any regulatory agency will validate those in some way. Uh, the Joint Commission is primarily who Baptist uses uh, as a regulatory body uh, to validate compliance, and they do. They, they have a focused session. Um, typically, it's anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half where uh, they review um, our emergency operations plans. And they're really, Jake, they're looking for, Dr. Lancaster, specific components of the plan. Now, they want to make sure that you address all six of those areas I just spoke of. Um, so they'll look for that. They look for the structure of the plan. But really, they're looking for key components to make sure that we've addressed those things and make sure that it's specific to uh, the environment where they are, right? Okay. And for for a large hospital, while its structure and content will be very similar to an emergency operations plan in a small hospital, the smaller hospital might not have, have all the operational capabilities that a larger hospital does and the resources. And so their plans, while very similar, will have certain nuances that are different. And that's really the expectation when, we, when, from when a regulator comes in. You know, there's key components you have to have. They'll check those boxes. But they want to make sure that the, the entity um, has made an emergency operations plan and a business continuity plan that's specific to their environment. Yeah, and I would add, uh, you know, that even specifically to the Joint Commission, uh, you know, just recently they put out uh, more messaging, whereas when they would come in to uh, do their unannounced survey, uh, they often wanted to uh, have a group together and it's got to be a multidisciplinary group, you know, so that all people uh, from all different levels within the hospital or the medical institution uh, can contribute because they all have some involvement with patient care. But then also um, not only the environment of care, but there was always a component of emergency management. Uh, just recently, they've now pushed that more of the focus is to emergency management and maybe rightfully <coughs> so because 
we have a pandemic going on and and which uh, has caused a lot of interruption in services, interruption in resources, and how are we act, you know, how are we reacting to that challenge? And uh, not only um, uh, do they examine us and uh, come in and do a spot check, but they're educators too. So they often ask us, you know, what is your best practice? And we have some very good ones, and they'll ask us if they can then share that and, and put that into their repertoire to share to other facilities. So yeah, we look to, to them as well, not just to regulate us, but to educate us, because we want truly uh, what's best to take care of our patients. You know, information is knowledge and knowledge is power. So the more we can inform our staff members, the more we can prepare them, the better they're going to be able to, to care for those patients and by communication. You know, the emergency operation plan is what I refer to as our owner's operator plan. Just like if my refrigerator is not working, I can pull to that and, and go through a checklist. You know, uh, how is our communications in our facility? Uh, during, a, during an emergency when things are hectic, uh, that's not the time to realize that you don't have batteries in the radios that you're going to be handing out to people. You know, so we have to be prepared. And that's what emergency preparedness is really all about, to try to be as uh, uh, familiar and up to speed so that when an emergency happens or a disaster happens, uh, we can hit the ground running and let our staff members do what uh, they're trained to do, and that's to care for patients. So COVID has given us the opportunity to test out our emergency operations plan, right? Would you say? Oh, yeah. and have Have you learned anything? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, you know, months before we had, you know, our ground zero patient here in, in, in Memphis, uh, in, in this community, uh, as a system, we had subject matter experts going back and looking at our pandemic plans that we had developed many, many years ago. And of course, those are updated with the set frequency. But, you know, as we started looking at those and dusting them off uh, in preparation for this potential response, um, we identified, you know, things that we needed to adjust and, and account for, whether that be supplies, uh, you, know, uh, ass, you know, other critical asset inventories, medical equipment, things of that nature. Well, you know, we get the first patient in March of 2020 and you know, I, Tom can probably speak better to this than I, but I know for a fact throughout the response, we adapted and adjusted those COVID or pandemic response plans, you know, four or five times uh, in working with the hospitals to update, you know, specific to their entity. And all that was based on, you know, the real world thing happening. You know, it, a lot of the, the work that had been done prior to the pandemic was, you know, it had happened somewhere else. And so we took what was the best practice at that time and, and, and tried to mirror it in a document and, you know, and, and in practice. Um, but what we realized, you know, when the real thing happens, you, you have to quickly, you don't throw out the paper or the plan, but you have to adapt it uh, to, the, to what's happening and how you're able to respond. And so we did that numerous times throughout the response. and. You know, I, the, I can't talk highly enough about our leadership. I've had the opportunity to go speak at a few uh, conferences around the country. And, you know, the team, the teams, you know, both at the system level and at the entities have done an incredible job of being flexible and fluid 
using their plans, but being flexible and fluid and adapting so that, you know, we can provide the highest level of care. And, you know, we've developed things like our, we call it our COVID care system, which I think we're on version 39 now, Dr. Lancaster. I think that's right. Yeah. Right? So, you know, it started out with number one and here 18 months later, we're on version 39. And so, you know, that's a great example of how we've adapted um, and, and, and changed throughout this response. I think that's that's also too, just being, you know, we are such a big part of the community, you know, healthcare, the, the hospital on the hill. And uh, we have to not only are we, you know, we, do we employ people for that area, but we're caring for people. And we do have to be fluid. We have to be adaptable because guess what? COVID-19 is adaptable. You know, wh- where did uh, the variant D come from? You know, that, that whole idea, whereas before when we first saw it, you know, we thought it was a, a, a fragile virus, you know, was not necessarily uh, airborne, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and we found out quickly that uh, it either adapted or we, we learned more about it. So then we started putting up shields. Not only do we, you know, we need to maintain our PPE, but we also have to protect those people, you know, those registers, those people in the emergency room who are first being confronted by that sick patient. Uh, so, you know, we put up plexiglass. We, we protect them in, in that respect. Uh, we uh, give them brown paper bags and they can keep their N95 masks to be uh, uh, to go under ultraviolet light for up to three times. Then it has to be discarded. And that was all intended for you would never have thought about doing that before it would be unheard of but because of there was supply chain shortages uh, you know we were forced to do that uh, and luckily we didn't uh, we didn't bear the brunt of a lot of that because of that training uh, prior to and those relationships we have with fedex which is based out of memphis so we have good relationships with that community talking to the ems <coughs> workers uh, that you know bring the patients to us so, you know, it really, you, you rely on those, that networking and those relationships more than you'd ever imagine uh, to help take care of patients. Well, guys, this is, it's been a great conversation. I know we're, we're running towards the end of our, our time, uh, but I do have to ask one more question. As cases continue to fall kind of around the, the area, how does an emergency end? What does that look like? How does the, how does the command center know when it's over? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think the big key there is is maintaining lines of communication, and you know, it, it's a lot of it's data driven. Um, you know, we track our patient volumes uh, relative to uh, COVID, uh, both you know positive and suspect. We've done that throughout the event. We we can look at trends in our communities in our region, um, and you know, and the data tells us a lot. I mean, we we we're able to uh, almost somewhat predict, um, you know, spikes. And of course, as we learn more and more, we're able to do that better. Um, but we use the information that's at hand um, that uh, our teams have done such a great job, uh, you, you included, uh, in, in developing and presenting and sharing across our, our system. And so we use that collectively to ramp up and stage down. Um, and, you know, it's done through, you know, group uh, communications um, and decision making, and and then you know if the system command center is standing down, you know we're communicating that out to the the entities, 
and um, you know sometimes they might stand theirs down prior to us standing ours down. Um, but that's going to be dictated by you know what's happening in in that environment. And so, you know, we've we've adjusted throughout the response. We've we you know we've had an active, you know, numerous people in the command center, physical command center. We staged down and did you know, kind of a hybrid virtual. You know, we would be in the command center and then after hours we would go virtual. Um, we've had 100% virtual. Um, that's where we are today, where we have a virtual command center. Um, so we stay on the ready um, and are able to adapt. And I think leveraging technology has really made those things possible, where we don't have to, you know, we don't have to look like NASA uh, in in their system command. Um, but we do need to have that capability when the time arises. And to include too, you know, we also stood up the uh, COVID resource center. You know, uh, staffed by clinicians and people who had uh, information readily available so that uh, our consumer, our, our co people in the community and our patients could call when they had a question about their lab results or where they can go to get COVID tested and what is the, the visitation policy. So, so to have that at the ready that the community could reach out and, and get those answers helps us as uh, clinicians in the hospital and staff members in the hospital because that makes for a better customer because they're more informed, they're more educated uh, because everyone's having the stressors. So anything we can do to, to give information to someone, it really empowers them and it makes, it, uh, makes the process a lot better. No, thank you both. And uh, I think we're really lucky to have both of you at, at Baptist um, knowing what to do in the face of emergency and, and able to guide us all through, uh, through what we've been going through. So thanks again for, for coming on um, and love to have you back. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It. Appreciate it. Hey, we appreciate y'all. Yes. Thank y'all.